What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The following podcast contains explicit language. We go everywhere in twos. Supposed to be for our protection. For companionship. It's bullshit. There are no friends here. Can't be. The truth is we're watching each other. She's my spy. And I'm hers. We've been sent good weather. Which I receive with joy. Hello and welcome back to Represent. I'm Aisha Harris, your host, and that clip you just heard was the sound of our bleak, wretched dystopia, or The Handmaid's Tale, Hulu's much-discussed new adaptation of Margaret Atwood's 1985 novel of the same name. So I don't want to say that I'm excited to talk about this. <laughs> I guess I'm <laughs> I'm a little um, anxious to talk about this. Uh, I'm happy... No, I'm not happy. <laughs> ah, and so I love the like, vocabulary dancing that we're gonna have to do for an hour. I know there's so much vocabulary dancing. Well, I'm pleased to say that joining me uh, this afternoon from our DC studios, I'm in Brooklyn, but Katie Waldman is in DC, and Katie Waldman is a colleague of mine, a Slate staffer. She's great with words, writes a lot about books. Uh, welcome, Katie, to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Hey. And this is your first time on, right? I think? Yes. Yes. This is my first represent well, appearance. Awesome. I'm very happy to have you on. Before we get started, let's give listeners a quick breakdown of some of the more important details of the plot ahead of our conversation. Since there's a ton of world building that goes on here and there are some major differences from the book, which Katie will be able to elaborate on later. We'll also post a link in the show page to a useful beginner's guide from Vulture. So The Handmaid's Tale, the series, takes place in a not-so-distant future in which a totalitarian, ultra-conservative religious-based state, the Republic of Gilead, has overthrown the U.S. government. Women have lost all rights to autonomy. On the social ladder, the highest-ranked women are the wives, followed by the Marthas, who are domestic servants, and the aunts, who are older unmarried women who serve to reinforce the suppression of the other women— and finally, there are the handmaids, whose sole function as one of the few women left who are able to have children in the wake of a worldwide fertility crisis is to submit their bodies to a ritual monthly rape by their commanders, the men. On the show, we experience this world through the eyes of handmaid Offred, played by Elizabeth Moss. You know, I have not read the book yet, but Katie, you have read the book and you've watched um, up to by the time this this episode, when you folks are listening in on this now, uh, the sixth episode will have been released by Hulu. And so we're going to talk about everything up to around episode six. Uh, so, Katie, first off, can you just give me your initial thoughts on the book and then what this series, this new series is doing um, to sort of update the book? Yeah. I mean, it's a really interesting question. I have a kind of 
or I had a sort of unconventional consumption of these two products because I was reading the book as I was watching the show. Um, and so they were sort of mingling in my head. But so the book, it, it feels a little bit less relevant um, to the moment than the show does. Like in the show, there are references to Uber and to Tinder. Um, and there's a way in which it seems like um, the book is great in its own right, and it has its own set of ideological concerns, and there's like a kind of sensuous uh, language that I think speaks more to Margaret At Atwood's anxiety about like the way that people would want to keep women down by sort of shutting down their sight, shutting down their senses, um, versus like in Donald Trump's America – we have more worries about maybe surveillance, about uh, the suspension of liberties. Anyway, we can get into that, I'm sure. But um, it did kind of seem like the show clarified some of the kind of latent things in the book in a way that felt really, um, I don't know, useful to me. Like some of the characters that were like a little bit muddy in the book um, speak in the show and they say exactly what's going on um, off screen and things that are left mysterious in the book are clarified in the show, which I found really nice. Yeah, I definitely want to get into that. Um, I mean, I guess maybe the best way to, to kick this off, though, is to sort of discuss the main character who we see this world through, which is Elizabeth Moss's character, Offred. There's Off Glenn, who is played by... Alexis Blail from Gilmore Girls. It's Rory, which is so, it's such a mind. Yeah. Can I say mind fuck on this show? Yes, we can curse. <laughs> okay. We do it's a mind curse. fuck. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's so weird. And and so their, their characters, they are the handmaids. Um, and they essentially are like, they're assigned to a commander. A, a guy, a, a man. Um, and their sole purpose is once a month when they are most likely when they're ovulating, when they're most likely to get pregnant, they have to succumb to the commander and hope that they get pregnant. Because we're living in a world now where like very like fertility is way, way down. Um, and so that's that's another point that's important important to make is that um, there's th this also incorporates a lot of like environmental stuff, uh, mm -hmm. which I'm not sure if that was in the book, the original version of the book. It's actually dramatized more in the show. So in mm -hmm. the book, it's like one in four um, children born are healthy. Um, and in the show, it's one in five. But yeah, no, there's still like the environmental catastrophe um, theme in the book. Mm -hmm. And throughout this, the, the series, we're learning about these characters and their backstories and what it was like before we lived in this world, because it hasn't always been like that. And the handmaids all were red um, and wear these like giant sort of nun-like hats that cover their entire face. Like it's kind of like a cone, actually, that mm -hmm. like just goes around their head. And then there's also, I forget what the green, like the, what the wives are called. I think they're just called wives, but they wear right, these yeah. teal, like very, and what's so interesting too is like the show makes it so clear. And it's kind of there in Atwood's language, but like the sumptuousness of the visuals here is like it's all about restricting bodily pleasure and sort of like your interface with the world needs to be like very, very overdetermined. Yeah. But like in the show, it's all so beautiful to look at. The music is so like um, perfectly suited to the scene so it's like a feast it's like an orgy and then it's also all about deprivation so I thought that was like a super cool thing that you can do with television that you can't necessarily do in a book right so 
let's just start with Offred's character. Like, how do you get a sense of her as played by Elizabeth Moss um, as opposed to, like, the way she comes across in the book? I mean, I kind of liked the—I liked Elizabeth Moss's Offred better, or at least she was just, like, more— of one of those, like, irrepressible resistance-fighting women that I recognized or, like, wanted her to be than in the book. Like, in the book, it seems like she hasn't quite—like, she's still reeling from all the changes that have taken place. Like, she hasn't quite crystallized, like, I stand against this. Like, I am going to manipulate my commander. I'm going to fight back. Um, and even, like, small details, you know from flashback in the show that— um June, when she was June, was involved in protesting. Like, she went um, and she carried signs until the army opened uh, machine gun fire on the protesters. Uh, she, But she just seemed more politically engaged. In the book, she sort of stands at arm's length from, um, for instance, she has—there's um, a character in the book, her mother, who was— uh, a kind of battle axe 70s feminist. Um, and she kind of holds her mother at arm's length and says, you know, I'm suspicious of any kind of ideology, which is, you know, a, a good way to be and like a good thesis uh, for this book. But like you don't rally behind her in the same way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Verilyn, jumping in real quick, just to point out that I think that in the book, it was a longer distance, right? So in the in the TV show, we get the sense that this happened maybe like a year ago. But in the book, it feels like she was in the world of Gilead for a much longer period. Like this has been going on for a longer time. Did you get that same sense, Katie? Not really, um, but I could have just missed something. I mean, it just felt like the novel had these characters still sort of working through things. Like um, when uh, Serena Joy proposes to Alfred that that she try to get pregnant by another man who's not the commander because that would save her um, or at least like give her more time before she's sent to the colonies with the unwomen where people who are um, unfertile or disloyal are basically punished by cleaning up toxic waste. In the book, when Serena Joy gives her this out, um, Alfred's initial response is, oh, but I couldn't. We're not allowed to do that. Um, And she's still sort of like, how could you ask me to do this? Um, And then in the show, it's much more like, okay, what's our plan? Like, how are we going to rig the system and how are we going to move forward? Like, she seems a little bit more courageous or just like more prone to defy um, where she's ended up. Right. I mean, if you just think about like the final moment of the first episode in which we hear her name. It all has to look the same. Because I intend to survive for her. Her name is Hannah. My husband was Luke. My name is June. Which, as I understand it in the book, they, we never actually hear, learn Alfred's real name. Um, there have right. been hints that it might have been June um, mm-hmm. and because it's mentioned once in one scene in the book uh, and then is never mentioned again. And so people have in- inferred that uh, her name is June, although Atwood herself has said, like, if people want to think that, like, that she was like, that wasn't my intention, but like, yeah, yeah. that could work. Um, but here, obviously, they make it very, very clear that 
her name is June, was June. And she says at the end of that episode, the first episode, like, my name is June. Um, So she definitely, yeah, she totally has this, like, way more overtly, uh, even though, you know, Atwood and Elizabeth Moss herself would probably shy away from the word, like, a very overtly feminist tone. Um, And defiant yeah and like her filthy monologue too like one of the best one of my favorite parts of the show is just like when you see the very aesthetically controlled and beautiful scenes like the two handmaids walking in in a pair and you know the pristine's shop fronts and everything and elizabeth moss's voiceover is like this is fucking the worst or you know like i wish he'd fucking hurry up um when they're having the ceremony um and in the book I mean, there's a little bit of that fire, but not nearly so much. And then another example would be not only um, do we get June's name, or I guess what we're going to call June um, Offred's name, but we get Offglen's name. We get Emily Mm -hmm. in the show, um, and there is no Emily in the book. Yeah, and Offglen, again, uh, just so people remember, is uh, played by Alexis Bledel, although her name then changes later on. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to see the ways in which her off Offred's character has so much disdain for everything that is happening to her and she's not afraid to through voiceover narration and even through just her look and the mm-hmm. eyes like the way in which she despises her position yeah. um, and it seems like a lot of that fire comes from we haven't even talked about her yet but from her her best friend from her old life Mora mm-hmm. um, who's played by Samira Wiley also known as Pusey from <laughs> Orange is the New Black, R.I.P. Uh, <laughs> and we we see through flashbacks when they're at these protests, her and Mora, um, as the Republic of Gilead has taken hold of of the U.S. and, and of, of Cambridge, Massachusetts, where they are. Um, you, it seems like Mora is the one who's like even more like at that point, like socially conscious and aware of these things, um, and is has has that fire that rubs off on on um on June's psyche. There's a great scene between her and um and Mora and her husband, um, which and that's another thing is like I love the way in which the show just kind of drops in more um clues as to like what the environment is like. It just it doesn't it's not like there's like this you know, exposition at the beginning that says this has happened, this has happened. Like you learn slowly, it trickles through through mm. each episode. Like, oh, they also can't do this. They also can't do that. Um, and we learn through this conversation the three of them have in this flashback that all the women, if they are married, their accounts are being given to, bequeathed to their husbands and they no longer have access to their accounts. They have this great conversation uh, about what's happening where the husband's like, well, I mean, you're okay. You're good. I'll take care of you. Like you have access to the, to my money, and Mora is like, that's not good enough. Yeah, and I just love I love that scene and the way in which it's dropping in. Like, oh, the, this is this is how it went down. It wasn't all at once. It was like this creeping. I mean, it was a sudden blow, but it was just like these these changes, like these incremental changes is like, first you can't uh, pay for your own coffee, then you can't have a job. Like, right. There's something like really interesting about the way it's, it's presented as both out of the blue, completely sudden, but also just kind of this creep that no one really, no one recognized what it was while it was unfolding. Exactly. And, and I think that's just part of the brilliance is that 
you know, obviously we are living in times where we have these we have these rights and laws being chipped away that are supposed to protect people. And that's part of what makes it so relevant. Um, there's also a moment in at the beginning of episode three, which I mean, I think we can we can say like there's spoilers abound in this conversation. So off Glenn has been taken away. Um, I think it was because she was like commu- like off Glenn is is gay. Um, and we learn that she had a wife and a child in her old life. And I th- think, if I remember correctly, she gets punished or taken away because she was having a relationship with another woman. Yeah. Within the Although group. in the book, she's taken away because she's architecting. Oh, my God, that's an Ivanka Trump word. No, sorry. Um, because she's involved <laughs> in the resistance in a leadership right. capacity. Oh, interesting. Okay. But at the beginning of the third episode, when she re- when June realizes that she's gone, she, she says something along the lines of like, now I'm awake to the world. I was asleep before. That's how we let it happen. When they slaughtered Congress, we didn't wake up. When they blamed terrorists and suspended the Constitution, we didn't wake up then either. They said it would be temporary. Nothing changes instantaneously. Like we weren't paying attention and slowly everything was getting chipped away. And now here we are and everything's gone. Yeah. I actually wonder, like, did you have a response to seeing these particular actresses um, or these particular actors in these particular roles? Because something that really uh, struck me was like... I had, I mean, Alexis Bedell is incredibly familiar to me as Rory Gilmore. Even like the wife, uh, Yvonne Strahowski, she was in Dexter, and and seeing Elizabeth Moss from Mad Men um, mm-hmm. in this role, it was like a really interesting um, enactment of like how these women had prior lives. Like we could have match them to like we could put them in a different context that's where we knew them and then it's like so creepy to see them reincarnated and like now they're in blood red robes and not able to speak freely and it almost like I'm glad that they used recognizable actors who like had different persona before um so mm-hmm. that you could see like oh my god what are they doing here in this dystopia like how jarring yeah i mean especially i never watched gilmore girls although i'm very familiar with the character of rory and i couldn't stick with dexter long enough but <laughs> uh, i did watch <laughs> but i did watch all of mad men and yeah seeing peggy in this world feels at once jarring but then at the same time it fits to me just because you know she was in so many ways from the like very beginning of the show of of Mad Men she was sort of like the there were more that trickled in later but like she started off as like she was like meant to be like this symbol of feminism that was new to that era and seeing her now in like this very just claustrophobic role um she's just so she's forced to be so subdued and so um submissive and yet we we are able to see that rage that bubbling rage yeah i want to talk a little bit more about the the sex scenes whether they are full-on rape scenes or there are more you know, passionate sex scenes that occur. And the way in which the woman is always centered in in these scenes, no matter what mm. what's happening, whether it's a rape or whether it's, you know, between two 
seemingly ostensibly consents, uh, consenting adults. And especially, so we see scenes of the, the handmaids having to learn how to take their rape, yeah. <laughs> how to be raped. Um, and that's led by the aunts, who are led by Aunt Lydia, who is played frighteningly well by Anne Dowd. Um, and just these lessons that they're learning, the tiny details of of those interactions and seeing it over and over, like mm. repetitively. Yeah. I'm not sure if there's an episode where we don't see that happening between June and the commander, who is played by uh, Joseph Fine. It's just so... Yeah. I, I've, I've seen other people use the word, and I feel like it is, tra- like, in a way, traumatic or really emotionally jarring. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a few points to make about those scenes. And, like, I think your point, especially about the repetition of it, is really important that this is a kind of brutality that has been ritualized, which is to say normalized in in Gilead. And that's kind of one of the way that this one of the ways that this society operates is to take something truly cruel and brutal and dark and to make sort of a custom or a ceremony of it. And then suddenly that becomes the new normal and people don't question it anymore. Um, and that's sort of a numbing thing. And then the other I mean, what really bothered me there's so, I mean, there's so much, but like, just seeing these characters' bodies instrumentalized in that way. So like, she looks, Elizabeth Moss looks nauseated. She looks bored. She looks, um, I mean, completely dispirited and broken in some of these scenes. And, and the other thing is no one looks like they, are enjoying themselves. Like, who is this good for? Like, the husband isn't getting pleasure out of it, it seems. Uh, the wife is absolutely miserable. The handmaid is miserable. Like, what? And then again, to, to juxtapose those scenes with the flashbacks from Luke and June having sex for pleasure and for procreation before, like, that is so pure, that's so sweet. And it's even adultery. Like, we see an adulterous sex scene that's, like, super hot and super sweet and wonderful and affirming. And then you flash to this new, supposedly more moral uh, state of affairs, and it just looks inhuman. I have the exact same thought. By, like, episode three, I was like no one seems happy like the men don't seem happy and they wield all the power right who is this good for and it's all in the name of fertility and of like god and we haven't even talked about the fact that like you know the the religion aspect which you could trade in for almost any other system like a system it doesn't have to be religion but they're all true believers but they could be believers in in anything it seems exactly and and so yeah, everyone looks miserable and the the way it's shot is very bleak and and miserable save for the flashback scenes which have a little bit more bright, brightness, but even those scenes like have like a a sort of dour sort mm. of pall over them. But then at the same time like happiness doesn't matter in this world because it's supposedly for like the greater good. It's for uh maintaining and preserving and keeping the human race alive because at this point as we mentioned earlier um the fertility rates are severely down Mm -hmm. and this latest episode episode six we finally get more of a backstory of the relationship between serena and fred and essentially when we see them 
they they both seem happy in these flashbacks um and they they have sex and it's fun sex and they have a relationship in which it's much less it's still sort of patriarchal in a way um in part i think because they are still very religious um and you know they um believe that fertility is like the most important reason to have sex uh but it, it they still seem he encourages her. She's a writer um, and she's in some ways like an activist writer and is is um, politically minded. And he encourages that in her. Um, granted, he's encouraging it like domestic feminism, like her her right. particular beliefs are, I guess, aligned with the, the suppression of women and her eventual voice or, or with her voice eventually. And that's that's what happens. Oh, exactly. I mean, she's she's basically sort of Ivanka mixed with. Uh, I don't know any other any of those pundits of yeah <laughs> yeah Kellyanne and and Phyllis Schlafly and Coulter yeah <laughs> yes yes um so yeah it but what's what's interesting about it is that so she proposes this uh this entire system essentially the Gilead system um but then there's a scene towards the end of the episode where. Uh, it it appears that she's been like pushed out of a meeting that they've been having, like her husband, and then like a bunch of the other men in the room. Um, and one of the guys comes out um, after she's leaving. She's like really she's upset, and the guy comes out and he's like, you know, it's it's our fault for letting women think that like they can have access to to, to knowledge, that they can have opportunity. Uh, we need to keep them in their place, even though this was basically her idea. She wrote a book about it. And to me, that was just so fascinating because it it said, you know, in the end, even the women who are condoning these these systems that will harm a lot of women, they wind up getting hurt in the end, too, because Mm -hmm. men will take everything. Yeah. And I think I think she actually is a TV evangelist in the book as well as a soprano, which is like, oh, my God, of course you are. Um, But... (laughs) It also, I mean, I kind of buy the argument like, okay, this is for the greater good. We need to devote all of our attention and resources to reproducing the human race and like getting out of this crisis. But dude, you can have procreative sex that doesn't suck for women too. Like you can have both and. And so there's like this weird perverse desire to disempower women almost for its own sake, like to make sure that they are not experiencing pleasure uh, that they're not fulfilling themselves, that they don't have love or, or emotional intimacy for its own sake, because you can have both. Like, that's the part right. that I don't understand. <laughs> um, and there is something really tragic about, you know, you see that Serena Joy is the author of these of these ideas of this of this principle of uh, national uh, like uh, fertility is a national resource and and reproduction is a national imperative and a civic imperative and it's horrible but then these ideas are taken from her and attributed to her husband and you're like no wait that terrible idea belonged to the woman god damn it like <laughs> right credit exactly. credit's due. yeah yeah and like you can only imagine what she's feeling it's like she's like you're taking credit but then it's also like, well, maybe what have I wrought here? Yeah. What yeah. have I done? Um, especially the dinner party scene in this episode as well, um, where the uh, the, pol- the you know government figures from Mexico are there to 
we at first think they're there to like talk about how to like improve their oranges or their yeah. environmental supply or whatever. Um, and the uh, female Mexican ambassador, I think she's an ambassador. Yeah, Castillo, Ambassador Castillo, I thought. Yes. So she asks a bunch of questions um, of the handmaid, especially, especially of June. And she's like, you know, are you happy? Um, like what? Like, did you what are, choose what is this? It like here? Yeah. Did you choose this? Like all of these questions that make it seem as though she really cares about the answer. And then when, you know, she finally when later on, when G- uh, Offred finally says, like, realizes I should have said something and then does say something right before uh, the ambassador is leaving and tells her it's terrible. She basically just tells exactly what's happening. And she's like, I can't do anything uh, because my country is dying. Uh, like, there's barely any children left. There's barely any people. No one is having children anymore. And we're here so we can trade for yeah. you, for for handmaids. Which and- was a fascinating... I mean, I would love to hear what you thought of that move because she this character and this whole subplot of the trade of the handmaids is not in the book at all and it's and it Mm. felt to me like an explicit comparison to the slave trade i mean there there are lots of interesting things it seems that that happen uh, around the question of race in the show that are elided in the novel and this was just the latest example and i thought it was a really smart and interesting move and something that like the novel could have, well, I guess the novel just had different or more submerged concerns. Yeah. I mean, I, that, especially the scene when they bring out all of the kids that mm-hmm. the handmaidens handmaidings have had, um, that was my first time seeing any other black women besides Mora. Like, I, maybe I missed them in passing, but like, I hadn't seen any other black women before that scene. So I was like, where did they come from? Um, and seeing them playing with the little black kids was like, it's, it looked to me like straight out of like Roots or yeah. any other slave movie. Um, and, and the hanging bodies that Ugh. we see throughout the, this, like, in several episodes. Although that also seems like, um, you know, as our colleague Brian uh, Louder pointed out, we were talking about this earlier on Slack today. Um, you know, there's there's also a gay like there are gays who are being persecuted as well, and one of the bodies hanging uh, has the symbol that um, yeah the pink triangle the pink triangle that that gay uh, people were given in in the concentration camps during the Holocaust. So, I mean, I mean that's part of what makes this so powerful, and what Margaret Atwood has said to be drawing from is she's like this like. All of these elements are coming from all different aspects of history and all different times in history. And so slavery, Holocaust, you know, you could go to Rwanda, you could go mm. anywhere and find like pieces that have happened in history. And yeah, I mean, another interesting thing is the fact that as far as I know in the book, they're, you know, the black people were pretty much like sent away uh, within the Bible. Ham is one of Noah's sons and he traveled to Africa and... Children of Ham is the Republic's name, the Republic of Gilead's name for African-Americans. So in the book, they were like being resettled within the national homelands, like which was essentially the Midwest. Um, And here instead, like there's not really any there isn't really any racial hierarchy that I can tell, except for the fact that there are like pretty much every commander is white as far as I know. Um, So but. With here, it's like they're sort of integrated. At the same time, I feel like the the, the show doesn't really deal with that in any other way. Um, 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, in the novel, Gilead is explicitly white supremacist, as you mentioned. So, so you don't have, uh, characters of color. Um, but it seems like in the show, the population crisis is so severe that they are sort of welcoming mixed race children with open arms. Like they're, you know, um, Hannah, who is um, June and Luke's daughter, is you know taken to like wherever they store the the future children of Gilead and is not treated differently. It doesn't seem. Yeah, here we didn't mention this earlier, but we should also note that um, her husband Luke is played by a black actor, so their child is of mixed race. And furthermore, just to add to that, uh, Nick, who is <laughs> another eligible bachelor in the wonderful land of Gilead, um, who <laughs> Alfred cannot by any under any circumstances sleep with, except that she does. Um, he appears to be half Asian. Yeah. Max Mangella, who plays Nick, is uh, he's the son, actually, of Anthony Mangella, the director. Oh, um, cool. But his mother is, is Asian. But yeah, I mean, for the most part, there isn't much to be discerned about the way in which people of color exist in this world, except that they exist. And none of them are in positions of power, save for Castillo, the um, and and like the Mexican ambassadors who come, uh, and they're not part of the Gilead. They're sort of outsiders, so it's a little different. Does that? I mean, do you think that this show handled that well? Because I think I would rather have a world where you see the effects or. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just trying to think like the book just kind of takes the issue off the table by saying like, yep, um, people who don't look like this particular vision of uh, white Christianity were like swept into a dustbin and dropped in the Midwest. And like, that's the end. But I'm kind of glad that the show sort of wants to wrestle with that more by having characters of color like in the scenes. I just don't know. Yeah. Like, should it be more sensitive to like I don't know, different experiences that these different people might have. I I personally feel as though it's just not very realistic. Mm. <laughs> um, I don't think, like, the way in which the TV series handles it. Like, I, like, I agree that, like, going the entirely other way of, like, saying, like, they've all been moved to the Midwest and just leaving it at that is not the way, like, I think that's an improvement that they didn't do that. At the same time, I don't find it, and considering that so much of this, and they take so many pains to get everything else very, like, realistic and, and, and very similar to the way things are now. I mean, there's an entire piece I found when I was doing research on Gizmodo about, like, the, the the laws that are in the Gilead that are actually laws in different parts of the country. Oh my god! Uh, it, it, we'll, we'll we'll put a link to it in our, in our the show mandated page, like, rape that we just don't know about. And oh god! <laughs> well, there, there's certain things like there's no like having vibrators and and sex toys and and all this other stuff. Yeah, but the the pains that this show takes to to get those things sort of very accurate and to seem like oh this isn't too far off like. I don't have enough faith in our country that when shit goes down, <laughs> people of color are going to, like, remain uh, integrated in that way. Like, I think there would be some sort of fission, some sort of mm-hmm. factor, like, fact, like 
dissolve. Um, And I think one way to handle it, which would make it admittedly and make it very tricky and would turn it into an entirely different thing altogether. But like if I were going to do something, I would say maybe they do all get sent to the Midwest, but maybe we see parallel stories where we see how the people in the Midwest are dealing with it, Mm. how the people of color are dealing with it. Or, you know, seeing I, I, I would even love to just see like some of those black handmaids who are who are there like what is that like with their commander right because i imagine it might be very similar to like slave master slave relations that 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 actually occurred in history um so yeah it's 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 tough but that's like i still think that i'm glad that you know we have samira wiley's character um because i do think that like she even though it doesn't deal explicitly with race first of all i just always love seeing her in anything yeah but also i think that she like gives like she has that connection to the outside world and gives us that connection to like what it was like before and i think it's really strong and i appreciate that that's like part of the story yeah i actually hadn't appreciated until you just said that how similar her role here is to her role on orange is the new black like she's a it prisoner really is, right yeah. yeah yeah it's just her feeling trapped and like defiant although mm. here even i would say she's more defiant than yeah. she is in orange is the new black um, just because in Orange is the New Black, she sort of still had this like very innocent quality yeah. to her and this feeling of like, um, come on, guys, we just got to like kind of play along. We're here. Let's just deal with it. Whereas right. on here, we like we see like more of a fire within her. Right. Um, but speaking of Mora, she there's a scene where they manage to lure one of the aunts away and basically kidnap her and tie her up and um mora switches clothes with the aunt and so she's wearing the clothing that is designated for the aunts that marks you as the aunt and so her and and offred take off and because she's dressed as the aunt she's able to get past like all of these doors get outside and they're like we gotta we gotta get out we gotta get to like i think there's people who are there there are people resisting away from Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's just you have to get there first. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they make it as far as the train station. There's like a train that's going to Boston. They're trying to get on it. And they get there. And one of them, one of the guards asks like, where are you trying to get to? And she's like, well, we're trying to get to Boston. And she's kind of drifted away from Offred at this point. And Offred's like just standing still. It's very tense. They're nervous. What if we get caught? And... The train just pulls up, and while Offred is, like, behind talking to another officer who's, like, kind of in quiet, like, he's like, what are you doing here? Where are you trying to go? Um, she, Mora, is like, the train comes up. It, it looks like she can get on the train. And she, like, they have a moment where they look at each other. And, you know, Mora's closer to the train. The guy, the guard sees her as an aunt, so she'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And as Verilyn, my producer, pointed out, it reminded her, and actually, like I'm, I did not think of this, but it took, makes total sense. Like it felt like a inverse or like a a a different take on what happens with Sidney Poitier's character in the Defiant Ones, where you know that movie he plays a a, 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 a outlaw who's chained to Tony Curtis, and they're trying to get away, and at the very end of the movie. They're able to get away. They find a they find a train that's passing by. Sidney Poitier jumps on the train, and then Sidney Poitier just has to reach for Tony Curtis's 
um, hand. Uh, wait, Katie, have you seen this movie? I have not. I'm listening with fascination. Okay. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> anyway, so Sidney Woody can either like stay on this train like Tony Curtis is running. He's trying to catch up. He can stay on this train and like be good, at least for like a little bit. Um, instead, he chooses to like reach down, try and pull up Tony Curtis's character. Ugh. And then because he tried once they grasp, they like fall off because like, you know, the momentum, whatever. And so people like it's a 1950 came out in 1957, 1958, around that time. And that's that's, you know, it's Hollywood saying, oh, the black man, he has to be. Sidney Poitier's character has to be so good and so selfless yeah. that he's going to help this white man who earlier in the movie was like calling him all sorts of names because he was black um, and sacrifices himself so that they can both like be stuck together again. <laughs> um, whereas with this moment in, you know, we have Samira Wiley's character, Mora, like just they they look at each other and they're friends. It's yeah. like they have that look and Offred gives her the, you know, the, the the sort of like the look like, go ahead. Yeah. Like, just go. And then she goes. And I was like, wow, that was just. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. Is this realistic? OK, so so here is my thought or one of my thoughts is like the sort of heroic position is invert. Or it's switched. Right. Because like. Sidney Poitier gets to be the noble, self-sacrificing person. And as you point out, like, he needs to be. Otherwise, like, racist audience would not be okay with, like, him choosing to, like, escape and not, like, I don't know, going back for his friend. But at this point, um, it's offered. It's the handmaid who has the lower status. And, you know, and you see how there's no individuality in these characters. They're just completely defined by their social roles as signified by the costumes that they're wearing. So the aunt is allowed to get on the train and the handmaid is not. And that means that all of our sympathy is then flowing towards uh, the handmaid character. And she's the one who gets to be noble and who gets to be the hero. Yeah. Well, we've certainly talked a lot about The Handmaid's Tale. There's also plenty more that we could talk about because so much happens in the show. And we'll make sure to, you know, drop in some suggested readings for those of you who are curious for further thoughts on the show on our show page. Well, before we leave, I definitely want to dig into a plus delta with you, Katie. And for those of you who are listening for the first time, we do a plus delta every once in a while where we discuss one positive thing that we've experienced or watched or seen or heard uh, that has had a positive take on representation and one delta, i.e. negative thing that, uh, you know, People could do a little bit better with their representation. Uh, so, Katie, why don't you go first? What is your plus? Okay, so I brought a feminist plus to balance out all of the misogynist and sexist bad vibes of The Handmaid's okay. Tale. Um, <laughs> and this is basically, actually, this is courtesy of our book critic, um, the lovely Laura Miller, who recommended that I read Angela Carter, who was a, um, a short story writer and a novelist who was writing in, I think, the 70s, uh, late 70s. And she, before it was cool, started retelling a bunch of fairy tales, which can be quite patriarchal and depressing in that way. And they are so beautiful and so brilliant. And I mean, not only is the language just incredible and like lush and amazing to sink into, but like, for instance, Bluebeard 
in the actual, in the fairy tale, it ends with the woman who's imprisoned in a tower is rescued when her brothers arrive in a ship and kill Bluebeard and then save her. Um, in this version, um, and I'm just going to spoil it because you guys all know Bluebeard and it's fun to read the story even if you know the different ending. Um, her mother, like, comes out of the sea on a horse, naked from the top up. So, like, her boobs just blowing in the wind with, like, a huge um, rifle that she has used to shoot tigers in India when she was a young woman um, and just, like, shoots Bluebeard between the eyes before he can kill her daughter. And I was just mm -hmm. like, this is the mother-daughter dynamic that I would like to see <laughs> in, more, <laughs> in more short stories. Anyway, it was just great. Angela Carter is brilliant and wonderful, and everyone should read her, so that's my plus. Awesome. What's your Delta? Um, actually, I think I'm going to go back to The Handmaid's Tale for Delta because I was intrigued by the choice to make Serena Joy this, like, kind of brittle, blonde, hot woman who's young and, like, maybe a sexual rival uh, for The Handmaid, for Offred. Um, because in the book, she is a more, she's older, she's arthritic, uh, she's kind of desiccated and past her prime. And I thought that was like an interesting choice for a lot of reasons. But it kind of bummed me out to hear the justification. I read that um, whoever it was who did the, who made that casting decision decided it would be kind of like sexier to have like these two beautiful women kind of duking it out over the commander. And like, I don't know. That just that just kind of bummed me out that that was the reason that they cast this um, more conventionally attractive actress as the foil for Offred. Yeah, I did not read that, but that is kind of lame. <laughs> like I, I would, I would have loved any other reason, maybe except for that. Because yeah. Then that just that just plays into like catfight stereotypes. Exactly. Which why do we need more of that? Right. Uh, it's supposed to be yeah. like solidarity among the sisters, um, and hopefully right. they'll get there. But like, uh, I don't know. And it's a missed opportunity to have an older woman actress play a role that's not just like an aunt in this in this TV show. That's a really good point. I mean, and to be fair, I think the book the book is harsher about Serena Joy than the than the show is. And it's mm -hmm. not just because they make her like this Glamazon. But um maybe I'll just confine the Delta part of it to the age discrimination. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for my my plus, uh I'm actually going to talk about Master of None again. Uh, by the time this is released, we will have dropped our, our very fun interview with Alan Yang, the co-creator. Um, but I wanted to shout out something I didn't get to mention in that interview, uh, which is one particular episode that has sort of a slacker vibe to it, the, the movie slacker, um, Richard Linklater slacker. And it's an episode that like in which Dev and and all of his other familiar the other familiar faces of the show um, are barely seen. They they're just bookended, and the rest of the the episode you follow three just like random characters who we never see again. And one of them is a Latino um, bellhop is probably not the right word, but concierge. He works at the front desk of uh, one of those ritzy Upper West Side. Um, apartments and he has to deal with like all the cranky like rich people and the annoying rich people and then 
after that, you follow a a woman who is deaf and who's also black, just happens to be black, and her like dealing with her boyfriend who like doesn't know how to please her. And that entire section of her episode, which is like probably around five, like seven to eight minutes long, uh, is almost entirely silent, and you just are seeing them interact in sign language. And the final character we follow is an African immigrant cab driver. And you see him like dealing with, you know, annoying cab, like cab customers. But then later on, you see his like home life. And then you see him going out with his friends to a club. And all of these stories are just like things you don't usually see on TV. And I believe Aziz, Aziz Ansari has talked about that episode and how he felt like part of what he does on the show is he tries to give people like himself who like you don't normally see on TV like chances to be seen and i just really appreciate what he did with that episode and i highly recommend it i think it's really well executed you're making a very compelling case for it i kind of want to go home and binge it yeah. <laughs> yes it's it's so great it's one of my faves from that season um Sweet. as far as my delta my delta is um this came out last week as of this recording um but my delta is charles barkley's american race oh no which I don't know who is clamoring to hear Charles Barkley talk. Nobody before. and nobody. <laughs> <laughs> None of us. <laughs> no, no one was. But look where we are. And there is one. And uh, I've I'm, I've reviewed it. My thoughts are there. You can read them on Slate.com. We will put a link to that. But uh, he's just someone who is known uh, not just for being a former NBA star, He's also known for saying really asinine things about race and politics and lots of things. Uh, sometimes the things he says could easily have been said by Rudy Giuliani or have been said by Rudy Giuliani. Uh, so to the fact that they give him this platform is my delta. We don't need it. There's so many other things you could watch in its stead. Watch W. Kamau Bell's United Shades of America or Ava DuVernay's 13th or anything else <laughs> so that that is my delta katie don't watch it <laughs> okay i will not and thank you so much katie for coming on and sharing your thoughts with us well thank you so much for having me i know that this may have not been like the most spa day ish recreational discussion but like i really appreciate hearing your thoughts and i hope that this does not become america circa 2019 yeah well we try not to have too too uh spa like conversations on this show we like to you know make yeah. people as anxious as possible so. <laughs> <laughs> thanks katie um, may the lord open <laughs> blessed be the fruit <laughs> as always thank you all for listening if you've been following along with handmaid's tale head over to our facebook page slate represent and share your thoughts with us also, if you were waiting until you finished binging Master of None to check out our last episode with co-creator Alan Yang, and now you're caught up, don't forget to go back and check that one out as well. Represent is produced by the lovely and amazing Verilyn Williams. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of Panoply. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Represent. The music you're hearing is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. Until next time.